No more sorrow. No more pain. One day, I will rise. Man, there's a joyous thought in that song. Let's go to our Lord and Savior in prayer together. Our God, we, we come in worship of the one who paid it all. We come gathered together to worship our King, the one who nailed it all to the cross. It is ours no more. Paid for in full. We worship you, God. Keep our eyes on you, God. Set our hearts, our minds, all that we are on you. Be glorified tonight, God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Nineteen thirty-three, the first Nazi concentration camp was opened. Nineteen thirty-three, Heinrich Himmler, just outside the town of Dachau, Germany, opened up a camp that would be used for criminals, those who opposed the Nazi state. Well, this concentration camp grew in size, and political distance were were put there. Jews were put there. And during the, the time of World War II, it was an imprisonment camp for the Jews, for those who opposed Nazi Germany, anybody who they deemed to be dangerous. The people who lived in that camp lived in constant fear for their lives. They suffered under brutal torture treatment day after day. There are thousands of people there who were subjected to medical treatments, medical experiments every single day testing to see what would happen if somebody were submerged in ice. How long could they survive? Testing to see how long somebody could live after being cut. How long would it take for them to bleed out? Horrible conditions that people lived in there. During the time that that camp was was open, 50,000 people at least were murdered in the Dachau concentration camp. But then on April the 29th, 1945, the 157th Infantry Regiment of the United States Army came to the camp. And the army came to that camp and they scaled the walls. And when they scaled the walls, they took the camp. And the one who was leading the attack described it this way. He says, as the main gate to the camp was closed and locked, we scaled the brick wall surrounding the camp. As I climbed over the wall following the advancing soldiers, I heard rifle fire to my right front. The lead elements of the company had reached the confinement area and were disposing of the SS troops manning the guard towers along with a number of the dogs that were guarding. By the time I neared the confinement area, the brief battle was almost over. The coming of the United States Army to Dachau camp was an act of terror for those who were there inside the camp. Those Nazi soldiers who are standing there guarding the prisoners, who are manning the towers ready to gun down any prisoners who escaped, saw their death coming when the army advanced upon them. It was a moment of terror in which most of them were killed. 
But what about for the prisoners who were there? What was a moment of terror for those Nazi soldiers was a moment of relief, of comfort, of joy for the prisoners who were staying there. This is the way it was described by that same captain who was leading the charge. He said, during the time that I was there, as I was going over the wall, over 30,000 camp prisoners still alive began to grasp the significance of the events taking place. They streamed from their crowded barracks by the hundreds and were soon pressing at the confining barbed wire fence. They began to shout in unison, which soon became a chilling roar as they recognized they had been set free by the army. See, what was, what was a moment of terror for the Nazi guards was a moment of triumph and joy and comfort and relief for those who had been held captive there in that camp. Tonight, as we finish up the book of Nahum, we're going to see something similar taking place. As we, as we look to the final chapter, chapter 3 in the book of Nahum, we're going to see that what is happening here is a moment of terror at God's wrath coming. But at the same time, it's a moment of comfort for those who've experienced the oppression of the Assyrian army. Remember, we've talked about uh, the situation and what's taking place here in uh, the book of Nahum. Uh, the Assyrian Empire was the evil empire of the time. Uh, they were a, a group that had committed atrocity after atrocity. And, and so even, even as horrible as we remember and think about the experiences uh, that the Nazi army uh, committed, the, the Nazi death camps that was taking place there, the things that the Assyrian army did were equally, if not worse, than what, the, uh, than what the Nazis did. So for all their evil, all their injustice, all their oppression, all that the Assyrian army, the Assyrian empire had, was doing, God's wrath was going to be poured out upon them. And God's wrath pouring out upon them was going to be a moment of terror as they were annihilated. But at the same time, for those who had been oppressed by the Assyrians, those who had lived under their hatred, under the constant threat of that Assyrian army, God's wrath wasn't a moment of terror for them. God's wrath was a moment of comfort. Knowing that God was going to deal with their oppressors once and for all. No longer were the ones who had oppressed them be standing over them. No longer were the ones who stood over them, who they were fearful of their lives day in and day out. No longer would that evil empire be standing there threatening to take them over. Tonight, church, I want us to see that there are two responses here to the wrath of God. Two responses, two ways that the wrath of God are dealt with here. For one, it's the terror that comes from the wrath of God. That's the Assyrians. For them, they're going to experience the terror of God as the wrath of God is poured out like a flood upon them. But for the, the people of Israel, Judah, the coming wrath of God is not a terror. The coming wrath of God is a moment of hope for them. It's a moment of comfort knowing that those who have oppressed them are about to be dealt with once and for all. So let's start this evening by seeing the terror of God's wrath as it is coming down on the city of Nineveh. So let's pick up in Nahum chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Woe to the bloody city! 
completely full of lies and pillage. Our prey never departs, the noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. All because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face. Show to the nations your, ni- your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. It will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? When we read through chapter chapter 3 of the book of Nahum here, a lot of it sounds very similar to what we've already read. If you look back through chapter 2, you're going to hear things that sound very similar to what we just read right there. Uh, Chapter 2, there there are shields, there are soldiers, there are spears, there's chariots, a lot of the same things that are happening right here in in Nahum chapter 3. In verse uh, verse 10 of chapter 2, Nahum says, Desolate and waste, hearts are melting, knees knocking, anguish is in the whole body, all their faces are grown pale. Sounds very similar to what he's writing here in chapter 3. But we need to be careful and understand that Nahum is doing something different in this chapter. Nahum is showing us something different than what he has showed in the rest of the book. Because when we read the book of Nahum, so far we've recognized that the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh specifically, is an is a evil place. We've known that. But nowhere so far have we read off a list of the specific sins of what they've done. We haven't found out just the evils that they've committed. So here in chapter 3, Nahum starts to line out for us to help us understand why is the destruction coming upon Nineveh? Why is God getting ready to bring his terror, his wrath upon them? And so I want you to listen. I want you to hear how Nahum describes the evil of the, the people of Assyria. So listen, look back at at verse 1 there, how he describes them. He describes them as a bloody city full of lies and pillage. Bloody city is what Nineveh is. In our sermons that we've dealt with already uh, in chapter 1 and chapter 2 so far of Nahum, we've seen and we've talked about the atrocities that the Assyrian Empire committed. And and we, we mentioned just a little bit about that and about how the things that they did were, were so despicable that we can't really present them in, in this situation right here. Horrible, horrible violence. Horrible, horrible killing of people. Mutilation, torture, almost beyond description and imagination. And, and you know, we, we hear and we talked about Dachau, other concentration camps, things like that. And, and we, we hear that and, and recognize how evil, how horrible those things were. And, and perhaps even with Assyria, it went even beyond that. Because they, they weren't hiding their evil off in camps. They, they had their evil right in the midst of their city. They reveled in it as a people. Right outside the city of Nineveh, as you go through the gate, they would line up on poles the people that they had conquered. And so they had put them on a stake, lined them along the city entrance so that the people could revel in, enjoy in how they had had victory. And these are the people that we have conquered. 
And so they didn't hide their evil out, among, out, out in the forest and the hills. It was right there for the, all the city, all the people, all the kids, everyone to take part in and see and enjoy the death that they had, that they had prayed out upon everybody. This is what the city was, city of blood, literally. It's a city of lies, is what Nahum says. <clears throat> they lied to the people around them so they could have an advantage over them. And, and so one example that we have uh, in the Old Testament is the Assyrian king sending an emissary onto Judah and, and sends this kind of official down to the people and says, go to them and speak to them lies to turn them away from their own king." And so this official goes down and, and starts spreading lies among the people of Judah. And it says, do not listen to what your king says. Listen to Assyria. We are here for you. We are here to make your life better. We are going to provide you with what you need. And so they would send in people like that to lie to the people. And then when they had got them listening, they would send in their army to bring them captive. This was their pattern over and over of what they did. Evil, lying so they could gain advantage over the rest of the areas around them. So in this way, they became a huge empire. And so Nahum says, Woe to you, bloody city. Woe to you, completely full of lies. Woe to you who are full of pillage. This is what's going to happen. It's going to be horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a massive corpses. This is what's going to be on your streets. You've lined your streets with people on poles, now let me tell you what's going to happen to you. Your streets are going to be lined with your own dead, not with those that you've conquered. Because they're a city of blood. And Nahum says not only they're a city of blood, they're a city of harlotry. Look what it says in verse 4. All because of the many harlotries of the harlots. It's like giving it the fullest explanation that they can. These are the harlots of the harlots. The reason for that is because Sexual immorality was truly rampant there in Nineveh. Part of their worship would be going to the cult prostitutes in the temple. That's how part of their worship was carried out. And so Nahum says, this city is the epitome of sexual immorality. And so what's going to happen to them? Look, look at what God says is going to happen. Verse 5, behold, I'm going to lift up your skirts over your face. So you've committed this sexual immorality, so what we're going to do is we're going to expose you. We're going to show your evil for what it is. And the result of that is going to be that you are left dead in the dust, and it's going to be so horrible that no one will even look at you. This is what's coming to the people of Nineveh. This is what's coming to the Syrian army. And the thing is, is that they can do nothing about it. There's not a thing that they can do to stop what is getting ready to take place. Listen to what, uh, listen to what Nahum says after this. We're going to follow along. Just kind of follow along verses 8 and 10 and going on through there. And we're going to see what Nahum says about is coming to the people of Assyria. Are you better than Noamon? Now, Noamon is a reference to the city of Thebes. Uh, Thebes was a, it was a mighty city during that time. It would have been the New York or the L.A. or whatever city you want to put like that of Egypt in that area. Uh, and said, are you better than this other mighty city, Thebes? 
which was situated by the waters of the Nile, with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea. Thebes was just like Nineveh was. Thebes was sitting right beside a major river. And so right beside it, this river, it had the river kind of to the back of it. So if anybody wanted to attack the city, they had to come from the front. Nobody could attack from behind. And so it was like they had a natural wall where nobody could get to them. Nineveh was the exact same way. They were situated right beside a, a, a big river, uh, and so they could be there, and no one could get them from behind. And so they could have their walls built up, and there's no chance, it seems like, that anybody could come against their walls and to defeat them. And, and so here, here Nahum is saying, well, look at Na- Nahamon, look at Thebes. Were they able to survive? They're just like you are. In verse 9, Ethiopia was her might. Egypt, too, without limits. Put and Lebum were among her helpers. You know, just like you had all these allies, Nineveh, just like, just like you have these so many different people you think that you can go to and can help you and bring you success, Thebes thought they had that. They had, they had Egypt on their side. They had all these other places. But they couldn't stand. Verse 10, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also, her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men. All her great men were bound with fetters. Destruction comes upon them. It's going to come on you, too. There's nothing that you can do to stop what is getting ready to come. Verse 11, you, too, will become drunk. You will be hidden. You, too, will search for a refuge from the enemy. But not written here, but you won't find it. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Have you ever gone to a ripe apple tree, shake the tree, and see apples fall out of it? This is what Nahum is saying is going to happen to the city of Nineveh. They are so ripe that somebody is going to come in, shake them, and have total victory over them. They're going to fall into the mouth of the army that's going to come against them. So behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Destruction is coming. You can't do anything to stop it. It's on its way. So you know it's coming. So let's see. Let's see if you can do anything to stop it. So the Lord says, okay, go ahead, Nineveh. Do as much as you can. Try your mightest. Try your hardest to see if you can stand against me. Listen to verse 14. Go, let's just walk on through this text and, and see what the Lord says to them. Verse 14. Draw for yourself water for the siege. You know a siege is coming. I'm going to bring this against you, so go get ready for it. Go out to the river that's beside you. Get up as much water as you can. Store it up in your cistern so you'll be ready for when it comes. And so once you've done that, now verse 15 or verse 14 still, go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. So what you need to do now, you've gotten your water, go on and you need to strengthen your walls. So send your slaves out to where you make bricks. Send them out there so they can make more bricks for you. And while you send them out, you go out there too. Tread out the bricks, put them in the molds, fire up the kiln so you can make your walls thicker. Build them higher, build them thicker, make your battlements stronger. Make everything around you thicker and stronger so that you can stand against the onslaught that is coming. Will that work? 
Verse 15, there fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. So multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. Okay, so you've gone out. You've gotten your water. You've made your, your walls bigger and your walls thicker. So here's what you need to do now. See if it'll help you if you go out and get more for yourself. See if you can recruit more people for your army. Multiply yourselves. Take over other cities and take their people. Bring them in to serve in your army as well. Build it up bigger and bigger and see if maybe you can have some protection from that. Well, you've increased your traders more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. All that you've done to gain these more and more and more people to help you, the bigger your army gets, the more slaves that you get to work in your army, they will just fly away in the end. You have no hope. Verse 17, your guardsmen are like the swarming locust. Your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers settling on the stone walls on a cold day. You've got millions, it seems like. They're stretched out, thousands of your soldiers. They're here, there, and everywhere. They're as thick as locusts is the idea that he's getting across here. Thousands upon them. Thousands of them. But when the sun rises, they flee. And the place where they were is not known. Oh, get your army. Build them up. Get it more. Get more for your army. See how big you can make it. But when the day of terror comes, they're going to run away and you're not going to know where they are. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your people are scattered on the mountains. There is no one to regather them. Your leaders are gone. All those you've looked to to guide you, Nineveh, they're dead. The day of wrath, the day of terror has come. They are no more. There's no relief for your breakdown, verse 19. Your wound is incurable. There's no recovery. There's not going to be some remnant of Nineveh that's left to rebuild. Every bit is going to be gone. And Nahum says, this is the terror of the wrath of God that is coming upon the people of Nineveh. For all their sins, for being a bloody city, lying city, city of harlotry as they're called, God is going to bring total destruction on them. Because this is who God is. This is what Nahum has been telling us from the beginning. That the God who he is serving is the God who is mighty in wrath and mighty in holiness, mighty in power. Nahum says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are broken up by him. No one can stand before his wrath. So the people of Nineveh, this is what's coming. Now my guess is that when the people of Nineveh heard this, they didn't think much about it. They had their mighty armies. They had their major city. They had their walls. They had everything to protect them. And so I think when Nahum first gave this prophecy, they gave no thought to it. But the reality was the day was coming. The day was marked. The day was set when God would bring his wrath upon the people of Nineveh. And so no matter what they thought about it at that point, that day was coming. A day that would be total wrath and terror for them. So for those who are 
opposed to God, that is the day. The wrath is coming. But for Judah, it's different. But for Judah, it's a, a different experience. For the people who had lived under a century of abuse, century of oppression, century of not knowing whether this army was going to come in and destroy them, it was different. The people of Judah, this day would be a day of comfort, of joy. I want you to imagine for just a moment that you are part of the people of Judah. I want you to try to put yourself in their feet, in their shoes. You've lived under this constant fear that one day an army is going to come into your city. And you've lived under this constant fear that that one night you'll wake up and they're outside your city and they'll break down your walls and they'll come in to your city and come into your home and everything will be done. All the horrible things that you've heard about will be happening to you. And so now I want you to imagine that's, that's you and that's your fear but then you get, you get this news that they're gone. That the evil oppressor is gone. There's no more of them. You don't have to live in that kind of fear. You can sleep soundly knowing that that is not going to come upon your family. What's the response to that? It's verse 19 there at the end. Listen. Listen to this. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you, for on whom has not your evil past continual? Everybody who hears about the destruction of Nineveh, everybody who hears about their fall, I mean, everybody, all of the people, all of the regions, they're clapping in joy about what is happening, that they have had victory over these people that have oppressed them for so long. This is the news. This is the comfort that they have been waiting for. Now, this is a picture of something from 2,600 years ago. 2,600 years ago, basically, that this happens. That Nineveh falls. Judah is released from the oppression of them. So, what does this have to do with me and you today? When we read this, is this just... A history lesson for us? Does it just tell us something that happened so long ago? I think the reality is that that what happens here in Nahum is pointing us toward a truth. It's pointing us toward the reality that God does deal with oppression and sin and suffering and injustice and all these evils of the world. He dealt with it in the people of Nineveh. And there's coming a time where God will deal with it once and for all. Scripture speaks about a day in which God will bring final end to all suffering, all injustice, all oppression, all evil in this world. And Nahum is pointing us to that reality. I want you to hear what the book of Revelation says about that. In Revelation chapter 18 we get a picture of what happens to the city of Babylon. Now, you remember Babylon. It's this, it's this picture of 
evil incarnate almost. It's a picture of a city that's given over entirely to evil, to sin, to, to injustice, all these evils of the world. And in Revelation 18, John gets this vision. Listen to what he sees. He says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. He cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Just evil after evil explained here. And so in verse 8, For this reason, one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. The Lord God who judges her is strong. And so at the end of this, we get this picture in verse 21. A strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found anymore. It's this picture of all those who commit evil, all those who do violence, all those who do injustice. It's all going to be dealt with at some point in the future. And so what's the, what's the response of the very next thing that we get in Revelation is a picture of heaven, this pullback to all of heaven. And so we get the response of heaven. How is heaven, all the heavenly hosts, taking this news that Babylon, the evil city, has been cast down and destroyed? After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And the second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. What happens when all of the oppression and injustice and evil of the world is cast down? All of heaven cries out, praise to God for bringing that judgment upon the evil of the earth, saying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, He reigns. He has dealt with it. See, here's the truth that Nahum points us to. There is coming a time when our God will fully deal with all the evil, all the suffering, all the injustice, everything in this world. He will bring his wrath upon, and it will be done once and for all. We live in an evil world. I don't think there is any denying that. But the time of injustice and oppression and suffering and heartache and brokenness is nearing an end. There will come a time when that will all be dealt with once and for all. So when we see and hear of the evils of this world. 
when we hear that Christians are bombed in Pakistan, we can know that one day God will bring an end to all injustice. When 2.5 million people in the world are victims of human trafficking, we can know that one day God will bring an end to all injustice. When over a million children are trafficked a year, we can know that one day our God will bring an end to all injustice. When thousands of children die every single day because they cannot have food, one day our God will bring an end to all injustice and all suffering. When there are 15,000 children in Kentucky that are abused or neglected every single year, we can know that one day our God will bring an end to all injustice. When we experience the evils of this world, when you look out and your heart is weighed down just by the reality of the evil and the suffering and the oppression and the injustice that exists in this world, we can know that one day our God will bring all that to an end and all of heaven will shout out, glory be to our God because he has dealt with it. And when suffering and pain and injustice and oppression or evil or whatever strikes you, and you sit in the midst of that in your life, and you feel the pain of that, then you can know the comfort that comes from Nahum. That one day, one day, all that will be gone. One day, our God will deal with it completely. And though you suffer now, though your heart breaks now, there will come a time where all of the heavenly host stands before our God as he forever, once and for all, deals with all evil, all sin, all oppression. And they will all stand saying, glory be to the one who has done this. Our God reigns. And so as you are in the midst of whatever suffering, pain, injustice, whatever might come in your life, Nahum points us to the reality that God will at one point, deal with all that. And so church, Nahum calls and says, hope in God. Hope in God in the midst of an evil world. Hope in God when evil strikes your life. Hope in God. Let's pray together.